Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So welcome to episode 16 of uh, the Core Kinetic podcast. And today I am joined by the wonderful Leanne Wood, who is joining me in talking about one of my favourite subjects, which is exercise. Uh, So how are you, Leanne? I'm very well, thanks, Ben. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And um, just to to add a a little bit of context for the listeners, actually, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Leanne many years ago, actually, at a conference, (laughs) and we ended up sitting next to each other in a uh, NOI Explain Pain conference, I think. And and I didn't think we'd be doing this today then. (laughs) It's amazing how paths cross, isn't it? Uh, Absolutely. And um, I always think it's wonderful to have previous connections and you know I I think that's always a a really really nice thing Uh, so would you like to let everyone know uh, a little bit about what you do Leanne and and what your interests are? Sure Um, so I'm a spinal advanced practitioner um, physiotherapist and I work currently at Nottingham University Hospitals Trust Um, I'm very much trying to be a clinical academic um, so I am predominantly clinical at the moment. So I work in an emergency department, um, same day emergency care unit for spinal pain. And I also work in a kind of secondary care triage role. And then the rest of the time, I'm either doing research on our patients. So trying to do service evaluations and, and um, pathway design and auditing our, our, our service. And then trying to do some postdoctoral um, research, which is around exercise and low back pain. So essentially, my passions are trying to improve how we care for patients with low back pain and spinal pain and how we improve treatments for them. And that very, very much aligns, as, as anyone who kind of has ever listened to me, um, very much aligns with, with a lot of my interests uh, as well. So, you know, both the world of uh, the mysterious world of back pain and actually the, the ever more mysterious uh, world of exercise and how those two things interact. And uh, and I, I think slowly we're learning how much we don't know and how much maybe we, we thought we did know uh, in this area. I know that your research has been trying to kind of find out a little bit more about how exercise and back pain kind of interact and how those two things relate to each other. And so could you tell us a little bit about, you know, you had a a publication that came out last year. Was it last year or the year before? Uh, It could have, it might have been both of those actually. Okay. (laughs) And and that was to do with matching, um, you know, the, the kind of proposed mechanisms of how exercise for back pain might work. Uh, with the actual kind of treatment that that people gave. And so, I mean, I've probably explained that really rubbishly. So could you uh, kind of let us know a little bit more about that? So um, thank you. 
I, I did a PhD. I was very, very fortunate to have, have had the opportunity to do a PhD looking a little bit into this. Um, and what we did is looked at whether we all know exercise is, is fantastic. So if, if you ask any physiotherapist or any any um, person who's treating pain or, or, or patients, really, we'd all tout the, the, the benefits of exercise from mental well-being to overall, you know, bone health, cardiovascular benefits, diabetes. We know that, you know, the benefits of exercise are really far reaching. But when it comes to low back pain, we couldn't seem to be captured. We weren't capturing it because when you look at the RCTs and systematic reviews and even clinical guidance, the effects of exercise weren't really any better than anything else we have, um, which seems a bit in contrast to what we know about exercise. Um, and so my PhD really looked to understand, well, if we think exercise is so wonderful, why aren't we seeing those effects? And, and one of the reasons might be how we are measuring those effects. Um, and so if you go to randomized control trials, which are obviously our gold standard in research, we think they're the, you know, they're the, the best way to try and create an unbiased effect. But most people tend to measure pain and physical function. Um, and they're the recommended outcomes for back pain. So people are on board with that and, and, and choose to use those as outcomes. But when it comes to exercise, firstly, we don't really know how exercise works. And when you look at pain and function um, and how it correlates with strength and flexibility and the normal things we, we prescribe exercise for, they don't correlate very well at all. So there's a very good possibility that the things we try and change with exercise don't relate to pain and function. And therefore, if we're measuring pain and function, we're not going to capture the changes we think we're making. So my research really tried to uncover, A, what we were trying to treat with exercise, and B, if we measured those things did we get better results in our exercise trials um does that make sense well i think it does I, it's trying to align you know I, I sometimes think that and maybe this is is a really kind of uh basic way uh to say the same thing um is i, I sometimes think we think about exercise very very generically like clinicians will ask me you know, when I teach, they'll say things like Ben does exercise work, you know, which is a massively broad question. Right. And I, I think that we need to maybe think how does it work to try and maximize getting it to work. And and so I think it comes back to sometimes asking, you know, how is exercise going to help this person? Um, you know, what, what is the target? What is the aim of it rather than just do some exercise? Um, exactly. And I think does, does that kind of encompass it from, from a really basic standpoint? Exactly. You know, I, th I think what we were saying is that essentially exercise, we don't understand how it works. And so, you know, we're not from a randomized control trial point of view, my research looked at, well, let's take the best randomized control trials we have. So we, we included 27 trials that had really big sample sizes. They were well-powered. They were well-funded. Most of them had protocols. You know, they were very good trials. And we looked to see, well, what were they trying to treat with their exercise? And then did they measure it? And if they did, was there a difference in those trials compared to the others that didn't? Um, and we did find a difference. Um, it wasn't statistically significant, so it's not changed the world of back pain just yet. Um, but it's certainly a sign that maybe we're onto something that's important. Um, so 
I included 27 trials in my um, systematic review, which looked at, at these things. And, and 18 of those trials did say, we think we're treating this. This is the, you know, our exercise is designed to treat strength or our exercise is aiming to improve catastrophizing. Or, you know, they stated very clearly what their plan was. So just over half. Um, but of those, only seven of those trials measured as their primary outcome, the thing that they were trying to change. So do you think, so, I mean, that comes, obviously, one of the primary outcome measures generally used is pain. So I'm assuming all of those RCTs measured pain. No, not all of them. Oh, okay. So, well, or disability. Exactly. Pain and function were the most commonly measured yeah, outcomes. Yeah. Um, and in my seven trials that had matched results, I think a lot of them did include pain, but they might have included two primary outcome measures. So like um, if you're in a, um, the Moffat trial, they included, I think it was kinesophobia and physical function, or it could have been pain and physical function, or it could have been a psychological measure and a, and another outcome of importance. Um, and I think it goes back to, you know, if you ask patients, a, a lot of my trials justified their choice of pain as their primary outcome, say their only one, because patients felt that was most important. But there wasn't a very clear mechanism from what they thought their treatment target was and how it got to pain. And I think it's that that's, I suppose, what my research has really showed is we may have a clear idea of what we think we're trying to do with exercise, but we don't understand how that relates to the outcomes of importance. So, again, it goes back to not understanding what that mechanism is. Yeah. And so what were so, so what were most of these kind of um, for, for the trials that did match some kind of, you know, more uh, a target that 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 we could go at a physical target, you know, such as stability or yeah. mobility or strength or, or, or whatever. What were the, what were those targets in, in the majority? So we have uh, pain. Sadly, there were things like pain, physical function, um, flexibility was one of them as well. Um, there was fear of movement. Um, what else was there? Um, physical function. Those were really them. Um, and I think what was was tricky was that in some of mine. So, sorry, I'm going back to reading my original thesis here. Um, what was tricky in some of them was that they were all the trials and so they didn't actually specify the primary outcome. So before the days of consult where you had to be very clear about what your primary outcome was, they had measured a variety of things. So like spinal stability or, you know, whatever they thought they were trying to change, but they were the, that was then their first measured outcome. So that we assumed that to be their first, their primary outcome. Um, but, and, and Jerome et al, they also looked at lifting capacity. So that was their other primary outcome. So they, they, put in place an exercise intervention to try and improve lifting capacity and they then measured that as their primary outcome so you have a variety many did include pain and physical function um, but often it was co-measured with other things yeah and i suppose one of the big problems is you know one one of the the issues i i think we have is that pain is a game changer when it comes to exercise i, I think that's the big issue uh partly here is that how do we define how how do we design interventions to affect pain when we don't quite understand um, how that works in the first place? If we don't understand how exercise works for pain, how can we effectively design interventions that address that 
causal gap or that mechanistic gap. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I saw this PhD going, I hate the use of pain as an outcome because I've worked, a lot of my clinical career has been managing chronic pain patients. And I'm sure for anyone who's worked with chronic pain patients, we tell them, you know, your their pain varies so much, often by so many other variables. So how they're feeling on that day, how they, you know, if they're from an emotional mood, we know so, you know, there's so many factors that drive pain. And so to use pain, is it in, measured in 24 hours? Is it measured over seven days? Is it measured over two weeks? What, you know, how have people measured pain intensity? You know, there's, there's so many things that influence that measure that to use it as the key outcome, I feel is really risky. It, there's, there's a lot of interpretation problems that can come with that. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot ever so slightly. What do you feel might be some other things that we could look at that doesn't just you know, that, that that maybe might capture um, change better or might be of more importance or maybe more uh, reliable, say, than, than, than something like a VAS or an NRPS? So this is, I apologise in advance, this is one of my rabbit holes. Um, of, I like, like rabbit holes, it's fine. <laughs> um, so I think the difficulty we have in the back pain world at the moment, um, if you look at any of Alessandro Chirotto's work, around core outcomes is that many of the outcome measures we have for back pain are the best we have, but they aren't the best, you know? And so there's a lot of debate at the moment with any of our outcome measures that we have available to us as to whether they actually measure the thing we're trying to capture. So when we look at kinesiophobia, you know, fear avoidance, there's debate at the moment as to whether the fear avoidance scales even capture that change or whether you're just capturing catastrophize you know um and so i think it's really tricky at the moment to know what to, to measure best um you know objectively there is i was having some discussions with a professor recently and we've we, you know things are, are escalating amazingly from you know with with artificial intelligence and like microchips which you can put on a patient and actually capture their you know physical activity amounts you know yeah. you can get you know really fantastic objective data about how active people are what are they doing in terms of behaviors changed which i think is is something to look into into the future um but certainly from a i think psychological measures are probably where we need to look from an exercise point of view that there's a lot to go into there you know i think I, i think we need to look further into that but again I'm saying that with the acknowledgement that a lot of the measures have limitations. Um, And so I don't know whether we'll be looking in the future at new outcome measures for back pain, you know, and for exercise and to try and capture these constructs that we, we, we want to get hold of, because I don't think we have the best outcome measures yet. Yeah. I I do like um, your discussion there of, you know, things like accelerometer data and, and these type of things. Because I think, you know, we what what happens to people on a daily basis, how much are they engaging in moving, you know, um, is is our exercise interventions actually having an effect on these kind of behavioural um, measures? And so it, it might be, as you say, that we could take a VAS or an NRPS measure you know, on, on a day. And actually that's a really bad day for a patient. And so actually it doesn't tell us very much 
actually about the course of an intervention. It, you know, it tells us, you know, maybe what's happening at this point in time. Um, and maybe could you do you think maybe something like daily reporting could be something interesting? So maybe not always changing the measure, but maybe changing the frequency of the measure and getting more trajectory-based information rather than just a point in time. Completely. And so um, I was fortunate to be at the forum conference this weekend and we were having a discussion with the early career researchers across Europe. And, and that was one of the things we were talking about was, you know, with COVID, like I, I'm not sure if you were signed up to the Zoe app, but, you know, the ability of kind of being able to do daily reporting and daily check-ins. Yeah. Um, and and I think people signed up to that. I mean, however many million UK res, you know, residents did that. Yeah. Um, I think that tells us that people can do it if, if they're bought into it and, and whether that's more helpful and changing, not just the, you know, daily, but make sure you can change time, you know? So if you don't want to be asking the person the same question every day at five o'clock, if, you know, they've just, whatever, dropped their daughter off or their child's come back at that time and it's the, it's a stressful point in their time. You, you, you know, I think with pain scores and things like that, you need to make sure you're varying time of day as well as, you know, getting that, that more frequency. But I think that will help a lot because another thing we don't know a huge amount of about with our outcome measures is when change will, will occur and at what point that change occurs. And probably because we've had the limitation of people have always got to go into a trial centre to deliver their information or, you know, do it by post and half the people drop out. You know, I think mobile technology really affords us that ability to get much more regular feedback. And that's really helpful because that might change how we, how what we understand about these variables and these components. Yeah, because there was Alice Kongstead's work, wasn't there, looking at trajectories of, of back yeah. pain. And when you actually look at these trajectories, you know, even if they're a weekly or a monthly over, over the course of a year, for example, you start to see these patterns, you know, this kind of, you know, real kind of wave type effect of, of, of people's pain. You know, some people have this... I think there are a number of different common trajectories. So you see this kind of two out of 10 low level, doesn't really change too much. This kind of mid one that fluctuates quite a lot. Um, and maybe it's not that I don't think we're ever going to get away from measuring pain as a subjective thing. You know, you're, it's never going to be objective, unfortunately. You know, we can look at accelerometer data and say this is objective behaviour and then couple that against subjective data as well of things like pain. Um, but, I, you know, this is probably where technology, you know, sometimes I think we look to technology to, to, to think about treatment. So, you know, virtual reality and all these things. But even at a really, really basic level and reporting, it can probably make a massive change to, to to how people research these type of things. Completely, and and I'm I'm not saying that we need to move away from the subjective measures completely, but I do think that having objective measures, particularly with something like exercise, but is really helpful, um, because I think we're certainly I'm I'd like to champion the the move to think that that kind of exercise is not just a, a treatment. I, th I think it's a behavioural intervention, you know, and, and I don't know if you've read um, Sarah Dean's been involved with, I'm forgetting who the lead author is, um, but from pelvic girdle exercises, they they wrote a, a paper trying to suggest that pelvic 
girdle exercises are a, a behavioral therapy. So it's actually a, a form of not quite CBT, but behavioral intervention change, um, because you have to get the adherence and the, the you know the buy-in from the patient to commit to doing that regularly. And I feel like that's where we are with back pain. Is that's the type of thing we need is to try and get patients buying that this is behavioral change you know for adherence you know for people to be motivated for them to to buy into doing their exercise to get a long-term change you have to have that behavioral change yeah i I think maybe it needs a shift in mindset because i think we often see things as physical or we see them as psychological don't we we like to kind of create that dichotomy between the two things and when i think about exercise and behavior change it's actually, you know, to 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 to, to look at that. I, I think that it's a combination of both, which is which is you know how human beings actually work. It's a bit of an artificial divide, isn't it? And I think um, that that maybe sometimes my problem with exercise is it's been looked at too physically, you know, and it's been looked at the load to the tendons or the bones or the ligaments or whatever, and. You know, maybe that that's where we're going wrong with trying to match things because we're sometimes thinking thinking about it maybe from too physical a standpoint. What do you think? Maybe just too much of a box standpoint, not so much physical. You know, I I, I think you're quite right. I think I think exercise. You know, if you go back to when I started saying, well, exercise has got these benefits on mood and well being and and cardiovascular, and you know, you can't extract one from the other. And I think. I think you're spot on. I don't think we can extract the psychological benefits from the physical benefits. And I think to to try and limit it to just one only is where we start to to go wrong. So that was part of the other part of my PhD was to look at, well, because exercise is this complex intervention where there's so many interacting factors, should we be having multiple outcomes instead of just one to try and capture that? Um, Or should we be looking at composite outcomes to to try and capture that? that multi-dimension components of exercise um but i think the tricky what, what's limited with that is that we don't have that we don't have the outcome measures to do that um and to again the individualization of exercise makes that tricky um so I, I don't know i think i think i think you're spot on that it's difficult to restrict how we prescribe exercise to one thing only i think it's a behavioral i think it's a combination effect and probably that's where a lot of my research is going saying that actually exercise is a behavioral component. It's the physical and the psychological that's intertwined and we can't separate them out. But as physios, we're much more comfortable prescribing exercise for biomedical or physical components. So you look at the trials that I included in my systematic review and most of them still report exercise as being done for strength or flexibility or movement control. That's what it's for. And yet know that back pain doesn't fit those groups. So why do we still prescribe exercise for that? But I think we're comfortable there. Yeah. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to grab an outcome measure here that I think is probably important, which is pain self-efficacy. So I think if you read enough literature and I I read a couple of papers occasionally, pain self-efficacy really stands out, I think, as an outcome measure. Now, the problem that we have, it seems, is it's a, it generally is used in a, in a prognostic sense, not in an interventional sense. You know, so I, how, do we, how, how do we go about taking some of these prognostic factors 
which are, you know, prognostic isn't predictive, but it's sort of predictive. How do we kind of think, well, this has an effect on outcome, but at the moment we don't know how and we don't know what to do about it. So, so what, what do you think, what do you think we can, I'm going to, again, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm enjoying this. How do you think we might take some of these outcome measures that we see prognostically and actually turn them into interventions? Well, firstly, we first need to prove that they, they are important. And so there is work that's been done. So the Australian team um, under James McCauley are doing quite a lot of work at the moment in terms of mediation analyses. Yeah. And um, I think they've got a, a protocol at the moment to look for um, self-efficacy um, as a mediator. But I think it's with education, not as an exercise intervention. Yeah, um, and CFT did that as well, didn't they? They did a mediation analysis and they found, again, I think it was about 50-odd percent of change on pain intensity and disability in their group was down to um, pain self-efficacy absolutely but you need big sample sizes for mediation analysis exactly and so and so at the moment if you've read um, Jill Hayden's recent Cochrane review her her kind of conclusion or discussion section is all about we need to stop doing small trials and we need to start doing bigger trials that have got built-in mediation analysis plans because the reality is, is we need to start testing these theories of how exercise works um, and, and essentially try and get a better understanding of what these key or active ingredients are so that we can then incorporate them or use them or test them further. Um, so a little divergent back to what you, you your question was is how do we start to incorporate it or how do we start to use it one of the um one of the fellowship applications i've put in to try and get some funding to be a clinical academic um is to look at a realist review of of exercise and and essentially the plan with that would be to to understand what are all these these factors and how what are the key components of say how do we ex- prescribe exercise for self-efficacy so i don't think we know at the moment we don't know what the active part of self-efficacy is how what what do we need to do to make exercise change that we don't we don't know that part Um, so we need to do a bit of research to try and understand that um, and then test that essentially because Um, because we're we're kind of highlighting it as an outcome measure yeah but when we are taking exercise as an intervention it's not matched because there is nothing you know, this goes back to your original research is we kind of, there was, there was a paper that actually came out, I, you probably know about this already, that showed that exercise didn't really have a big effect on pain self-efficacy. But, but again, it, it's what within that exercise was designed to have an effect on self-efficacy. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that's the problem. I really do think that's the problem. I think, you know, we can throw out, you know, things we want to change with exercise, but if we don't understand what the mechanism through which it will change, you're quite right. How do we measure it and how do we say that we've done that? Um, and I think that there's just, it goes back to what you said at the very beginning in the introduction. We're finding out how much we don't know, you know, and, and I think there's a large role for us. You know, I think I would say as a physiotherapy profession, we're moving towards more of a kind of recognition that we're doing more coaching, we're doing more guidance, we're doing a lot more behavioural therapy, kind of psychological intervention alongside our exercise treatments and so on. But I think we've still got quite a long way to go to be able to prescribe exercise effectively with that communication skill set to change those things. I don't think we have that skill set yet. Some people do. I think, you know, 
don't get me wrong, I think some people are really, really fantastic at that and have the gift of the gap or, you know, whatever it be to be able to to help people along that very well with the motivation and, the, and components. But I think for the majority of us, I don't think we have that. We don't know what that is. Yeah, well, I, I, I think sometimes, and I'm going to get on my personal soapbox here, I'm quite good at that, um, is that I think sometimes we try and make communication too much of an academic exercise um, in, in the sense that, you know, we want to find out that the in-depth, we want to know how to do it perfectly, um, you know, and I want to know the science behind it. Whereas actually, I think sometimes knowing, worrying about it less might make it easier. <laughs> you know, communication is, is, is something that obviously can, maybe if you're naturally a talker, I don't know anyone like that, by the way, Leanne, he's just natural. <laughs> um, but, you know, sometimes I think we we want to know the, the, too much of the mechanics of these things, whereas we just need to say, well, you know, imagine you're just, talking with someone not in this context or, or, you know, take the pressure off a little bit and just be yourself. Um, so, so I think we we can overcook that uh, a little bit. So, but so here we go. I'm going to circle back a tiny bit. We talked about the, me- you know, self-efficacy there. And I, I brought up self-efficacy because I think it is a, it is a fair measure, you know, yeah. because it does seem to be reasonably promising from a prognostic, not just back. And, you know, we go back to Rachel Chester's work in the shoulder, <laughs> We see that as well, especially through that kind of car analysis process that they did that I really don't understand. What other, uh, what other maybe psychological measures, or let's just, let's bin the the the, the boxing. Uh, what other measures um, out there are there that you think might be promising that we could look at to understand uh, exercise and, and pain a little better? I'm unfortunately going to stick in the boxing because at the moment, ones that we see that have promised us catastrophizing, fear avoidance, patient attitudes and beliefs, those seem to be the things that are, are promising from, from if we change them, then behavior changes. And it, it, it goes back to kind of, well, you know, what are we, ca- what are we trying to capture? But I think it's with exercise and back pain as a construct, you know, probably getting to that physical function and pain outcomes, which is really where we're wanting to try and change. We want patients to change what they're, they're physically able to do on a daily basis and we want their pain levels to drop. Um, it seems that those are the, the most likely paths that need to change in order for those things to happen. Um, but they do need further testing. Um, we don't know yet. We haven't proved it. That's, that's my suspicion. And, and that comes from some consensus work we did as well. So, I um, ran two different consensus workshops with clinicians and researchers and patients where we tried to agree, well, what are the treatment targets of exercise for low back pain? Um, and sadly, pain and physical function and quality of life were the top three. Um, and my sense was, that's great that everyone agrees that these are really important, but there's got to be something before that that changes. you know. And so we, we then looked further the next six which were then patient attitudes and beliefs and improving physical activity, reducing fear of, of, of um, movement, improving pain, catastrophizing, um, changing people's individual beliefs and attitudes and improving work capacity, interestingly enough. So I think that there is definitely scope. A lot of those were psychological and it goes back to that. My sense is we need that. We need that your head to change for your behavior to change. Um, but I think there is a, a bit of overlap. What do you think about um, 
other other outcomes, things like global rating of change and patient acceptable symptom state. Because I, I, I think that they probably are kind of multidimensional within themselves, if that makes sense. So, so you know, something like a global rating of change, it doesn't really ask about pain or about function. It just asks about what's changed. Um, and sometimes with things like, you know, MCID, you're trying to map one onto the other. And there is the argument of, of why not just look at things like global rating of change. Uh, and maybe sometimes, you know, although it's not in depth, it, the, the magic of them is that they're not in depth, that they are very general and quite broad. What do you what do you think about those measures? I think they're really helpful. And I think I think this goes back to a conversation you and I have had in the past. I think they're a really helpful sense checker almost to get an idea whether people are changing or not. And it, it again allows you to really look at the individual components or the individual participants within your trial to get a sense of how many have improved or how many haven't, you know, because I think with the risk with some of our outcome measures is they aren't always as specific or as sensitive as we want them to be. So, you know, you might not see a clinically meaningful difference in your role in Morris, but maybe actually if you look at your individual measures and you say, well, actually individually 60 people out of my group of a hundred said that actually they, they did feel that they got much better, you know, and 20 were the same and 20 were slightly worse. That gives you a, a slightly more detail as opposed to when you just average out your, your, outcome measures so i think it can give us a little bit more of a sense check as well um and i think it's helpful i think they're they're nice because as you say they're not specific it's a, it's an overall construct which helps patients just step back almost yeah i think you bring up a really nice point there that some, as a non-researcher um something that i've always found interesting and this is probably quite difficult to do is have a look at individual responses because i think that and i think even uh, i've heard jill hayden talking about this that you know sometimes we we when when you mash it up all together and spit out the mean then you don't understand that for some people it's been a life changer and for other people it's actually made them worse um yeah. what do you think about maybe delving a little bit deeper in and, and bringing out some more individual not so not responder analysis not a dichotomous analysis of just did they respond or not respond? But just having a better understanding of what were the spread of individual responses from the data. Do you think that's too difficult to do? I think it is difficult when you when you when you're working with big data sets. But you can you can always get summary plots where you can have a look and see well this is the this is the mean. Let's have a look at what the spread of result yeah. responses are. I think it's I think it's helpful because it gives you a, a good feel for how kind of acceptable or how you know, how well your interventions worked. You know, if you if you find that everyone's really stuck around that, well, we're not really sure kind of marker, well then sure, maybe you really aren't sure whether your interventions worked. But if you've got a fair, you know, a good sized group who've, who've made a big difference, it might be really helpful. I don't think we do that enough. And I don't, you know, it goes back to, I think there was a really interesting um, article written a few years about about how, how to write papers for clinicians to understand them and what we would take to try and make it more interpretable. And I think this this was one of the things that they they, they mentioned, um, but I do think it I think it might be a helpful way to get a sense as to whether our interventions are worthwhile pursuing because I also feel like there's a lot of research waste. So you know a lot of a lot of different trials have developed different interventions, and then they say this is a fantastic intervention, 
and then no one uses it. <laughs> it goes on the shelf and someone does the next intervention testing. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of feel like there's a lot of that type of thing as well. So I think having a, a really clear sense as to how useful these things are in practice, you know, and this goes back to what we call program evaluation or kind of just process methodology, you know, and understanding that the methods behind the, the trial of kind of breaking it down and saying, well, did that, um, did people find it useful? Did people find it easy to engage with, you know, just understanding that the process alongside the trial also, you know, helps us as clinicians to apply it better and, and know what will work with our patients. So I think it could be that we're doing this responder analysis as, as you kind of say, in terms of looking at, well, did people respond or not? And let's look at the uh, spread of the, the results. But it might just be also just using a process methodology where you, you're then interviewing patients or speaking to clinicians who deliver the intervention and getting that sense from them, you know. Yeah. That's what and, and maybe that's where mixed methods has a, a real kind of bonus here, is that you can have all of this um, kind of quantitative data but then maybe we'd like to know how the interventions also affected people within that study, even if we, you did 10 randomised interviews or something to find out, you know, what was the actual impact and what did the person think of it and how did it affect their lives and these kind of things alongside some of that, you know, mean data. Completely. And 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 that's, you know, so, so with complex interventions, they do recommend what we call like process methods or and, and so mediation analysis is kind of a secondary quantitative measure in terms of saying, well, let's measure what changed. But the, the interview component is, is, I think, really rich because it really helps you understand whether people found it impossible to fit into their daily life or it was a, such a game changer. They, they didn't want to miss it. They, they made time for it. Do you know what I mean? But it, that will give you that insight. Um, and I think that that needs to be done more in future trials. And it, again, it, it comes back to that whole thing of we've got lots of small trials. We don't need more small trials. We need more really good well-designed trials that are big that allow us to do these extra analyses to give us more insight which will yeah. hopefully inform clinicians and patients because we uh we, we talk about things like you know effectiveness trials pragmatic trials in the real world but we never actually ask people how pragmatic it really was i don't think you know we we, we try and assess the prag pragmatism from the data we, you know or the inclusion yeah. criteria who was in it you know, or, or we try and control less variables so that, so that you know, we can say that it's more, you know, reflective of being out in that real world, not in a controlled environment. But wouldn't it be interesting just to ask some people, you know, how easy was this intervention or to even take a quantitative measure of what was actually, you know, in some way, how easy was this for you to do? What were the challenges of incorporating it into the real world? And I think, you know, to some degree with exercise, they're definitely advocating to have better adherence measures as well. So trying to capture, well, how many actually did what you planned them to do? You know, how many made it? You know, if your intervention was three times a week for six weeks, how many people actually made that marker? You know, and if not, why not? You know, and, and I think that's the kind of data we need or detail we need from our, our trials now, because we've got lots and lots of trials on exercise and low back pain, but we need that that kind of the extra detail to help us inform future directions because otherwise i think we're just going to be re repeating the same thing because we, there's too much out there for people to actually interpret it and go well let's you know move forwards so do you think that we are going to find one measure or or one kind of uh, mechanism that actually underpins all this or do you think it might be that we're not finding this universal population level 
information because actually it's not there, that there's lots of these different things that may have an effect. Ben, you, you know just as well as I do that the same patient group who have discogenic back pain have got so many different targets within, you know, if you took 10 patients who you saw who had the same back pain, they've all got so many treatment targets and so different because of their social context, their job, their psychological stresses, their comorbidities. No, I think that I, I, I fear that this fellowship I'm applying for in terms of a realist review is going to produce so many potential mechanisms that we're not going to be able to kind of narrow it down to something that's feasible to actually apply or change clinical practice because it's just going to be too big. Um, you know, if you look at um, some of the other work that's going on in spinal stenosis, it's, it's looking at gene expressions, you know, so gene predictors that might, might show, so genetic predictors that might demonstrate who's got a better response to to other treatments. And, and so, you know, there's still the bioscientist pathway of kind of saying people saying we don't know enough about inflammatory markers and genetic expressions that may result in a good response or bad response to treatment you know so you've got that whole avenue that that needs to be explored you've got the whole endogenous you know opioids and and descending pain inhibitory pathways and and that community who who are fighting for that pathway for exercise you've got the psychological constructs you've got the social construct of exercise is good because you go on a, on a group ride or, you know, group Pilates class and you feel much better because you've interacted with other people. You know, there, there's so many different methods through which it may work. And I think that when you take an individual and, and look at their individual risk factors and, and back pain drivers, I think it's going to become really complicated. Um, and then to try and put that into a trial, I think, you know, we're probably never going to be able to capture the one thing that is the important thing across all those people but i think it's important to have those discussions and start being aware of them yes. because i think as clinicians we need to be able to better target them and recognize them within our patients and understand that we're not treating everyone for improved strength we need to start changing that that dialogue's got to change yeah yeah no I, I i totally agree and i think this is kind of there are as many subgroups as subgroups that you create, isn't there, if that makes sense? So if you create two subgroups, well, everyone is going to fit into two subgroups and you've simplified it and you've made yeah. it easy and then you can just do whatever, you know, flexion and extension as an example, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, in the kind of, you know, if you, in, in some of the systems that we know out there, you know, the sub we can subgroup people into three or four groups. Whereas actually, if you identify a hundred variables, well, then you might have a hundred subgroups. Um, and, and so sometimes I think subgroups are literally begging the question a little bit. They're, you know, you will only have as many, you know, you will only make it as complicated as, you 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 want to if that makes sense so you can go right down that rabbit hole of of really complicated understanding everything or you can kind of subgroup into this more simplistic way yeah. um but yeah my mindset is very similar that sometimes actually you have to step back and i think sometimes this is why i've gravitated towards a more person focused care approach um because actually maybe it's saying you know, a mechanistic perspective when you're actually treating patients can be really, really difficult uh, because there are so many of them, as, as you pointed out. But, you know, maybe uh, maybe working with that person offers us another avenue of, of trying to uh, of trying to work with people as well that, that might be a little more focused in one area rather than the other. Um, uh, right. So to, to kind of finish off. What do you think, Leanne, is the future of it? And you, this is this is no pressure, but you have to solve everything. 
So what is the future of exercise prescription uh, in your uh, opinion? I think it has to be more patient-centered. And I think as, so I speak as a physical therapist, as a physiotherapist, that I think we have to step away from just prescribing exercise for biomedical or physical reasons. I think we need to acknowledge that exercise has wider benefits that we typically don't prescribe for. We probably, we need to understand what those are in more detail. And we need to understand how best to prescribe exercise for those components. But I think we need to broaden our horizons of how we prescribe exercise and think out the box. Yeah, I mean, this is really unscientific. And I'm sure, you know, lots of people out there would say this isn't good enough. But sometimes I feel that I just improve people's confidence in using their body. That, 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 that pain and injury or fear or whatever is decreased. That You know, this person's just their basic confidence to use their body and put themselves in certain situations um, and just helping people to, to, to go through that experiential process of engagement in a movement or engagement in a social context or engagement in something that they have stopped doing is... Is is a real benefit? Is that not scientific enough, though? I don't know. That's what I struggle with. Well, I would I would argue you've done the psychological treatments that I'm advocating for. <laughs> yeah. You've reduced their fear of movements. You've improved their self efficacy, right? So you've done everything we're saying. Yeah, I think that's what when when you go to self efficacy and uh, and what Bandura kind of originally said. He 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 self efficacy is is a specific task. That was what he would say. Whereas confidence is more generalized so the difference between the two would be confidence is generalized and then self-efficacy is about pain or about exercise or about a really specific task and you know i think that often we do kind of general exercise interventions that has an effect on people's generalized confidence and 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 I, i you know i do struggle with that but then i also think do i need to go too much deeper then I would argue that the patient-specific functional scale would be a really good measure for you to use because it's a patient choosing their specific goal that they can't do at the time of starting and saying, how capable do you feel of doing this? And you're arguably changing their capability or capacity to feel that they can undertake that. And so one of the things I'm looking at with a research team is, is about the patient-specific functional scale and seeing whether that's got a potential pathway again because it's patient-centered. Um, you know, So everyone's going to have different goals that they choose. And you're looking at how that changes over time um, and, and whether that's where we need to move towards is, is really helping to, to focus more on patient-specific goals that are aligned to their own individual targets as opposed to a group. Yeah, and, and someone who's done a really loads of work in that area, another guest on the podcast was Tanya Gardner, who's looked at loads of, of kind of, you know, goal-setting stuff and more patient-led goal-setting as a really important factor. I suppose my one issue with with the PSFS is that do we push people to have goals based around function too much? And in that sense, one one of the big, my big swings in, in mindset over the last few years, I'd say, is understanding that lots of patients' goals actually revolve around not just function and not just pain, but pain and function. And again, it's kind of a composite. So do we need something, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe this is something that could be designed. Do we need something that focuses somewhere in the middle? Is that possible? Because I think that probably captures 
the multidimensional nature of the pain experience. And it's not just pain and it's not just function. Actually, it's pain and function. <laughs> yeah, completely. Uh, and I think, you know, I definitely think there's scope that, you know, as outcome measures, there could be improvement that, you know, but I think we probably also need a bit of a better understanding of what's important and what, how best to capture those things a little bit, like we said earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need people, you know, doing work in different areas that that helps us, you know, capture that that type of stuff, whether that's outcome measures, whether it's mechanisms, whether it's person focused. Uh, and it allows us that ability to zoom in and zoom out, I suppose, which, you know, we always need the detail and then we always need a, a more philosophical global uh, perspective into this as well. I, I'm going to go into the philosophical global perspective. <laughs> it suits my messy brain uh, much better and I'll, I'll leave all that, you know, all, all the complex data part to, to much smarter people such as yourself, Leanne. So, look, it's been uh, a real pleasure uh, to come on, for you to come on and have a chat with, with me about uh, exercise and and um, and treatment targets and pain and stuff. So what, what have you got coming up in terms of forthcoming research stuff from, from yourself? I'm currently working with a team where we're trying to conduct a multiple mediation analysis on a Pilates exercise trial. So oh. trying to understand what the mediators were to that led to change in pain and physical function. Nice. So watch the space. It's a, a work in progress, but I think it'll take many months before I have any results for you. <laughs> well, you know, these things do tell I I've got a I, I've got a paper in peer review at the moment in its third round of peer review. Okay. And it's amazing when you look back and it's been a year and you think, blimey, it's just like a whole year has gone and it's just been bouncing back and forth. And uh, so it kind of goes really, really quickly and really, really slowly at the same time that this kind of process. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, it's a slow, it's a, not a one-day game, as I say. No, no, it's not a one-day game. It's definitely a test match. Well, Leanne, thank you so much for coming and speaking to, to, to me. Where can people find you if they want to find you? I'm on Twitter, so at Woodwick's Leanne um, is my Twitter handle. And otherwise, they can email me through my um, keel address. Do you want me to say that? If you're um, happy to say it. <laughs> yeah, so they're welcome to email me if they want to chat further. Um, it's l.wood2 at keel.ac.uk. Um, yeah. you, you will get a torrent of emails now. <laughs> I doubt, you know, I'd be very surprised. Just on Monday morning, there's just going to be like a thousand emails. Ask, can you solve exercise? Um, yeah, no, it's been a um, real pleasure and I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for the time and thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.